night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is business performance coach Kelly Riggs. Millennials now make up the largest percentage of the workforce. The clash of perspectives with boomers craving the comfort of a hierarchical organization and millennials demanding inclusion and collaboration impacts the bottom line. Father and son team Kelly Riggs, a boomer, and Robbie Riggs, a millennial, are uniquely positioned to challenge stereotypes and poke fun at the status quo. Kelly Riggs is a two-time national salesperson of the year and creator of Business Locker, a consulting firm adapting sports philosophy to transform business decision-making. He's on our show today. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Kelly. Uh, thank you very much, Catherine. A bit under the weather, but really excited to be with you this morning. Okay. Well, we, you know, uh, you get, as I say, you know, a half an hour, perk up, and we'll do the show, and you'll be great, because uh, we do want to talk about the book, and I think it's a really important topic, especially now, um, because we're having a lot of difficult, you, you talk about the differences between the baby boomers and the millennials and the problems that it creates in work, but it also creates problems uh, just in terms of, uh, you know, we have you have a father and son team, obviously, um, and we're, you know the title of the book is Four Generation Workplace. So what are we talking about in terms of four generations as, as opposed to the two generations um, in the context of the workplace? Well, oddly enough, if if we want to get very technical about it, we could actually find five generations in the workplace. Boomers, of course, are, uh, for the longest time, were the dominant generation in terms of numbers. That's no longer true. It is now millennials. By the end of 2016, millennials had surpassed everybody. In between them is kind of the lost generation. It's it's kind of funny. Gen X, uh, they were the ones that were born uh, beginning about 65 and running up to early 80s. Uh, and then coming online a little bit now is what is now referred to, shockingly, as Generation Z, Gen Z, or digital natives. Uh, they, uh, they basically were born somewhere around 98, 99. So, so they're just starting to get that would be 72 years of age minimum. And there are still a fair amount of those in the workplace, too. So it, wouldn't, it would not be unusual to find many as five generations in the workplace. So if we're talking about five generations in the workplace, obviously that's going to be a big issue in terms of how they operate, I mean, as you talk about in the book, but, and also how, what happens to the bottom line. Because how do all these people, how do these generations get along? You know, you're the expert, obviously. So where do you start? I mean, if you have somebody who's 65 years old and somebody who's 25 years old, they're the, they come from a very different skill set and a very different context. And how do you make that all work in, in, a, in an organization? Well, it, it, that, that's the whole premise of the book because you're right. It's, it's a train wreck because every generation that comes into the workplace, whether it was a boomer like myself or Gen X or millennials or whomever, every generation into the workplace is new and as such, they bring newness into the, into the workplace, new ideals, new perspectives, new backgrounds, new experiences. But millennials really are something quite different. When I started working and <clears throat> doing what I do now a dozen years ago, I, I began to get calls from companies that would say, listen, we know that uh, you specialize and do a ton of work in sales and leadership. 
we really need to know if you can help us with millennials. We need to learn how to manage millennials. And I said, well, well, what is the issue? Well, the issue is they're so different. You know, they're entitled and they're the trophy generation and they want to show up at Monday at noon, first day on the job in flip-flops and by Friday they want two raises and they want to be in the C-suite. You know, and, and so people were just confused about how to deal with it. The real difference with millennials is they are the first new generation to come into the workplace and they actually have something to offer. You know, Catherine, when I came into the workplace, uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I had drive and initiative and motivation or whatever you want to call it. I was a blank canvas, but I really didn't have anything to offer other than just hard work. Millennials come into uh, the workplace now and they're dealing with a generation of boomers who are not tech savvy, they're not social savvy. You know, they, they'll say, well, you can't even operate a smartphone and you're trying to tell me to sit down and be quiet and let you make all the decisions. And it's just completely foreign to them. So your question about how in the world do you deal with it is the prevailing question in the workplace because leadership is so much harder today than it was even 20 years ago because of the impact of technology in a generation we know technology. And what you have to do to, to begin with is before you ever make that offer to have someone employed in your workplace is you very much have to align your expectations and have these kinds of conversations about perspectives. Otherwise, you're headed for a very bad place most of the time. So in other words, Kelly, you're going to sit down like when you're in the interviewing process, interviewing a new candidate for the job, then you are actually, you have to talk about this before you actually hire them. You know, we have five generations or four generations in the workplace, and this is where we're coming from, and this is what you are going to have to deal with. Is that what you're saying? Let's say as you're talking to a millennial or even the one, what did you just, Generation Z, um, so that you can kind of avo- well avoid some of the problems once they get in the workplace. Um, that's my first question. The second question is, I think, which I hadn't really thought about, was like they have a lot to offer, and boomers, and I'm a boomer, didn't really have a lot to offer. Is that because the millennials have so much information available to them before they even apply for the job, and they've done a little, uh, just in terms of information, not necessarily in terms of experience. Well, let's, let's start with your second question first so we can get some clarity there. And you're, you're happy down that path. Yes, they're far more informed and have much more information at their fingertips. The important part is they know how to access it, and they have been doing so for a very long time. But, but millennials have grown up in an environment where they were always looking for a shorter way, a shortcut, what, they, what we would call a hack. You know, a growth hack, a work hack, a life hack, whatever. That's the word typically used to indicate some sort of quicker, easier, more convenient way of doing something, and it's all brought on by technology. You know, millennials and Gen Z, they know, they know technology. They know social media. They know uh, applications that, that many of us have absolutely no idea. So they'll see us doing something in, in a longhand way, the old way, it's the way we've always done it, and they'll say, listen, why don't, why don't you use this app, and why don't you do this, and why don't you shorten all this up? And it's very frustrating to a boomer, first off, because – you know, if you don't have the right attitude and aptitude to, to approach change, then, then you get a little bit offended or perhaps even insulted that someone would come in, you know, second week on the job and start telling you how to do things differently. But the problem is not millennials. Millennials are not the problem. Change is the problem. The, the, the workplace and the technology in the workplace has changed so dramatically and continues to change so rapidly that, that boomers who did not grow up weaned on technology, I mean, they're way behind the curve, and you'll find, you know, a smaller um, fraction of boomers who are very much at home 
with technology and have stayed current and who are always looking for ways to use it to, to make the workplace more effective. So to, to your second question, yes, they come in with skills, with aptitudes, with abilities uh, that, that boomers don't have. It, some time ago, Jack Welch, who was the CEO of General Electric, he sort of pioneered or at least introduced the idea of what is called reverse mentoring. I mean, he caught on very quickly that, hey, these young kids are coming into the workplace. They have skills and, and abilities and knowledge we don't have. So he paired up his senior executives with millennial, almost entry-level employees just for the sake of mentoring them, but also creating a reverse mentoring so that, that boomers could begin to assimilate, uh, you know, through uh, just connection and osmosis almost, some of, the, some of the skills that millennials had come by quite, quite naturally. So there is that. To what is, I want to interrupt you for a minute, Kelly. What if that doesn't yes. happen? Do, let's say, do boomers have anything else to offer? Does experience count for anything? I mean, maybe they can't, they can't uh, translate that into the mechanics of, of uh, you know, the digital age, but they do have experience with people and situations and business. Isn't, and can that, does that make a difference or does that not make a difference? Oh, no, absolutely it makes a difference. What, I'm, I'm not suggesting that boomers don't have anything to offer in terms of that relationship because clearly what they have to offer I think is pretty evident. They have you know, the wisdom of experience and failure and uh, knowledge captured over time and you know, all of the things, the skills that they've created. So the, you know, when a millennial comes into the workplace, what they have to offer is extremely niched around technology and social media and, and community and those kinds of things. But our point is, and, and the point of the counter-relationship, counter-mentoring, is that why not capitalize on both of those? Why not bridge the divide between the, the, the uh, generations? Why not leverage the potential of both to make both better? Instead, typically, and I'm going to be stereotypical, typically a boomer leader will say, listen, I've been doing this for a very long time. I'm good at it. I've learned the hard way. I've paid my dues. You're coming in brand new. So you sit down, be quiet. I'll teach you. You can pay your dues and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and take your time and all of that. And millennials are like, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, they weren't raised that way. As my son loves to tell me, Catherine, he goes, look, for all the complaints boomers have about millennials, you got to remember, you raised them. You, you were the helicopter parents, you and, you know, older Gen X parents. You're the helicopter parents that wouldn't let us fail and always made sure that, you know, it was fair and always made sure that uh, we didn't get in trouble. You would run up to school and say, no, no, not my little Johnny. He couldn't do anything like that. And then they come into the workplace and suddenly you want them to, you know, take, go back to that hierarchical sort of uh, structure. And millennials go, no. I mean, why would I do that? I've been raised on collaboration. I've been, ra- you know, the way... The way kids study today, Catherine, in high school and college is dramatically different. You know, they can study anywhere. They don't have to go to the library. They can be studying and have access to all the information they need via their, star- their uh, smartphones in Starbucks, you know. So yeah, all of the dynamics are completely different. And yet the, the traditional boomer leader is trying to preserve a kind of structure and workplace environment that is antiquated to the millennial. They don't have to. They don't have to do that. What they can do is say, wow, you know, things are changing. I, I'll give you a great example. In the world of sports, you take a uh, legacy coach like uh, Coach Krzyzewski, Coach K at Duke. He has continued to win for, you know, 25 or 30 years. And yet the game has changed. The rules have changed. 
players have changed. Millennials, you know, are, are in uh, his players now as opposed to the kinds of players they had 20, 25 years ago. And yet he continues to win year after year after year. He has done that by being adaptable to those changes. And that's, that's what we're suggesting in counter-mentor leadership is the way you've always done it. What got you here is not going to take you to the next level. And if you're not willing to change and adapt, you're, you're, you're going to become irrelevant. Yeah, you become irrelevant, and also those millennials that you have hired, they leave. They don't stay because they don't have to stay, right? I think they, exactly. I don't know what the statistics are, but every two years they change jobs or every two or three years or maybe even sooner than that. So they're not, you know, stuck in some antiquated old building that they have to stay for 20 or 30 years to get their gold watch. So what you're saying about the coaches, the whole thing about and what you talk about in the book, I guess, is the, is this relational leadership rather than just yes. giving directives and stuff. So you have to create that. Can you give us more examples? Because I think people understand that when you put it in the context of different kinds of companies, perhaps, different kinds of organizations. How does that work? Well, I, I'm, and I'll sort of link it back to the original question you had is, you know, how, how does this start and when do you do it? Do you, do you begin that conversation pre-hire? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. What, what savvy leaders recognize, Catherine, is that there are major differences both in backgrounds and skills and, and, and that millennials do have something to bring to the table. So what, I'll give you a really good example that I think your audience could relate to. We know that boomers really value respect. We were raised with yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. We were raised to believe that a, a policeman, a fireman, a coach, a teacher, they deserved our respect because of their position, and you afforded them that respect. And we care about that. And being respectful means acknowledging people's title and authority. Well, interestingly enough, millennials really care about respect as well. The only problem is, is they define it quite differently. You know, you, you'll hear a lot of terminology, a lot of conversation in, in popular culture about disrespect and he dissed me and those kinds of things. And what they're saying is he didn't treat me the way I deserve to be treated or the way I think I deserve to be treated. So they come into the workplace after we have offered them a job, you know, we've, we've uh, acknowledged their value, we've made an offer, they've accepted, we've given them a job, we've offered to pay them, you know, a wage and so forth, and yet they come into the workplace and they don't say, well, you're the boss, you're my manager, I'm going to respect you. What they say is, I will respect you when you earn it. And so this is one of the commonalities where we can actually get together pre-hire and talk about the differences in perspective. Part of our counter methodology is that you have to really understand the perspectives and how they're different and, and align your expectations together. So, for example, a, a hiring manager would say, listen, we want to tell you about who we are, the kind of people we are, the way we do business and so forth, what our cultural values are all about. And let's talk about respect because we believe that when you come into the workplace because we've offered you a job and we believe it's you know, the way things should be, that you should respect your manager unless they lose that respect by acting in ways that are contrary to good leadership. But we believe that they should continue to earn your respect, but we expect you, when you come in, to provide them and afford them a level of respect, even on those times when you may disagree with some of their decisions. Now, is that something you feel comfortable with? Our experience is, is that 95% of the time, millennials will say, well, of course. Now, they'll, they'll jump in and say, now, look, I, I expect a boss to respect me as well. Absolutely, no problem. You know, a great leader should respect his or her people because, as you mentioned, and, and we preach a lot, leadership is not generational. It's relational, and good relationships are formed on a foundation of trust, 
and trust is based on respecting each other's differences as well as their similarities. So that's, that's a good place to get on the same page. Before you ever get anyone hired, you begin to align those expectations and perspectives. So what does this say for managers, let's say? I mean, it seems to me the whole training process has to be very different, especially in maybe larger organizations or larger companies, because typically, let's say, a manager who's a baby boomer of 50 years old, let's say, doesn't really come from this. So how does that actually work in the organization? What do you do? What do you, how, do you train, how do you train, let's say, the managers? Well, it's, it's very intuitive on your part because you, you put your finger in the middle of it. I agree with you. I, I think today's institutions, our, our workplaces, have to become educational by nature. I mean, that needs to be their driving force. We have to become training organizations, and part of that is training our leaders how to be much more effective as leaders because therein lies the challenge. You know, if you're a traditional boomer and you, you know, you've had success by sheer willpower and, and working hard and all of that, and then you get a bunch of these young, you know, smart aleck kids come into the workplace and they want to run the show in a week and all that. If you have the inability or if you don't have the ability to adapt and say, listen, it's not about my workers. It's about me. I have to make changes. The question then becomes, what changes are those and how do we get those? And, and, and I think that today's workplaces, today's corporations need to understand we've not adequately prepared leaders to be effective leaders. They, they don't know the skills. You know, we, we talk about being a better leader and an authentic leader and improving your leadership, and people sort of nod their head, but they don't really have any idea what that means. So to give you a really good example, ask someone to define leadership. It's really interesting. I mean, there's, there's a half a dozen definitions, and there's a hundred variations on those definitions. And so what my son and I do to get everybody on the same page is to say leadership is the art and science of getting things done through other people. And what's interesting, Catherine, is we promote people for their ability to get things done, but when they become managers, we forget to tell them that your role is changing now. You, you don't get things done. You get things done through your people. And, and this, this, this highlights the real challenge. We ask leaders three very simple questions. Who hires your people? Who trains your people? And who's responsible for leading them? Then they'll say, well, I hire them, I train them, I lead them. What's your point? Well, the point is, if you have an underperforming team, it's not your team's fault. It's your fault. And, and that, that puts some people back because they go, whoa, 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 hang on a second. I've got some people that aren't as very good and all that. Whose responsibility is that? The reality is, is if you don't have a high-performing work team, it's because you don't have a good leader. We see that in sports all the time. We have a poor sports team. We get rid of the coach. You know, we can blame the players all day long, but we believe that the coach is responsible to assemble a team, train a team, lead a team to be effective. And if he or she doesn't do that, then we get someone else. Are there companies, specific companies that you can name, for instance, who do this and do it well, who have adapted? Well, you know, specifically, you know, typically when people ask about um, those kinds of companies, they're looking for well-known companies. We could, we could tell you several that we know of, people typically wouldn't know who they are. But I, but I will tell you that there's been a lot of adaptation into the workplace. A good friend of mine locally, David Burkus, is a, a professor of, of management at, at the Oral Roberts University. He's a TEDx t- a talk guy, and he's written a couple of books. And one of the books he wrote is ent- entitled Under New Management. And he's outlined a lot of the, the very new management practices that exist. One of those is that people have have sort of gone off the 
the deep end of the scale because they've said, listen, we don't need leaders at all. What we need are self-managed teams. And you see some big companies that have done that. People like Google and, and people like Zappos and some of the well-known names that we know. Unfortunately, uh, self-managed teams have not worked well. They have not fared in some smaller instances with smaller companies. They've had some pockets of success, but very little because all you're doing is trading leadership, a singular leader, for consensus. And leading by consensus is a train wreck in and of itself because now it's more like a conspiracy of leadership. You know, instead of one person making a decision, we say all 12 of us are going to make a decision. But, Catherine, what are the odds all 12 of us agree? So if someone disagrees, we still have that friction that's involved. But I think more and more companies, especially mid-sized companies, are beginning to understand that the most important asset you have in your company, uh, in particular, are your mid-level managers, we, we, there's the old saw that says our most important asset is our people. It's not true. The most important asset you have is your leaders because if you don't have good leaders, you won't get good people and you won't keep good people. And I think more and more people are beginning to understand the investment in training leaders to be effective, to be good coaches and to create cultures of engagement. It's the best money you can spend. Well, you know, it's interesting because I'm looking, you and your son co-authored this book. You're the, a, a boomer. I'm is, is, uh, assuming he's a, a millennial. So you've kind of 30, been able to do this. 31, yeah. You, yeah, so you've done this on, you've done this personally because the two of you are obviously working together, uh, doing, you know, you have a business together. So you've kind of conquered, you know, exact, it seems to me, you've been able to conquer these issues that we've been talking about or that you talk about in your book. So, yes, you you're, abs- yeah. you're absolutely right. In fact, and that's where uh, the, really the idea for the book came from. I mean, my son is uh, 31. He, when he left college, he went into big consulting. And uh, now a dozen years later, he, he actually interned with me for, you know, in college. Uh, but a dozen years later, he and a partner own their own multi-million dollar consulting firm on their own right. And then he and I worked together on a lot of projects based around uh, the generational leadership issues. But when he was a young man, he grew up in an entrepreneurial household with, with me, and then he interned with me. And when he got out of college and got into big consulting, at first our conversations went like you know standard father-son conversations. Hey, Dad, I ran into this issue. Hey, Dad, how would I handle this? But as he got more and more into his career, and I began to encounter more and more generational issues, I would say, hey, tell me a little bit more about how you guys deal with this, and how, to, how would you approach something like this based on your experience and what you've seen? And, and that, that conversation began to sort of level out where it was a, a give-and-take exchange and not just a one-way uh, offering up of, of, of ideas and you know, uh, advice. So th- we, we sort of came to this idea that it was like a teeter-totter. At one point, you know, all the weight was on my side, but over the point, uh, you know, period of time, it began to very much balance out. It was counterbalanced, if you will. And, and that's the whole idea behind the counter-leadership idea is that there's a give and take that can evolve in the workplace where you can take a brand-new millennial and, and by, by capturing their passion and, and knowledge and enthusiasm and the skills they have, you create tremendous engagement with them by making them feel like they're in on things and they're a part of the decision-making process and so forth and so on. We're not letting them, you know, we're not letting them run the show. We're not letting them take over. And what we're not doing, Catherine, and a lot of organizations do, is substituting cheap substitutes for this. We're not saying, oh, well, hey, please come to work for us because we'll, 
we'll, you know, we'll put a new coffee machine in the break room and uh, we'll have a kegger once a month and, you know, we'll, we'll do Blue Jean Fridays. That stuff, you know, it, it can be helpful, but it's not what constitutes engagement. These millennials want to be valued, but that's not unique. Every employee wants to be valued for their contributions. And when a leader learns how to capture that, they're, they're going to really turn their workplace upside down. Well, I think, it, Kelly, it's the first thing you talked about in the interview. I mean, you, it's trust. You were talking about that with your son. You began to trust one another, and then you build up the respect. And it's sort of, I don't know if you call it organic or not, but trust is the key. Um, yes. We only have a few minutes left. This is fascinating. Um, so, but I do, so I want to right now mention the book again, Counter Mentor Leadership, How to Unlock the Potential of the Four-Generation Workplace. And we've been talking to Kelly Riggs. Um, where can we, I mean, you guys, you and your son are doing a lot of work uh, besides writing the book, but a lot of other kinds of things as well. So talk to, just tell us where we can access that, you know, on, online um, and websites that we can go to uh, for the All book. All right, very good. Yeah, well, our, the first website, obviously, is our joint website. It's countermentors.com, and you can find everything from our video podcast, which we do a couple of times a month, to uh, the book uh, that we, we just wrote and, you know, all the materials about us and what we do. I, uh, I founded the Business Locker Room 12 years ago. You can find my work, my individual work, at bizlockerroom.com. And, of course, I've, I've written other books as well, but I, I work in the areas of sales and leadership and strategic planning. My son's company is called Sana Sano Consulting, and which is a mouthful, S-A-N-A-S-A-N-O Consulting.com, and you can find out more about his practice there. Okay. And we can uh, buy the book bookstores everywhere, I assume, on, on Amazon. Uh, really a pleasure talking to you today. Great information, and I definitely I recommend the book to everyone. So uh, great having you on the show. Thanks, Catherine. Appreciate that very much. Thanks for tolerating my voice today. Well, your voice sounds great. <laughs> it's Stay <scratchy>. well. <laughs> Thank you so much. Or get better. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, 
and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working For You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Christopher DiCarlo. Six tips, his new book is Six Steps to Better Thinking, How to Disagree and Get Along. It is a familiar cycle following a national tragedy involving America's most hotly debated and controversial issues. Each side becomes utterly polarized, angry, and deadlocked. Dr. Christopher DiCarlo is a master mediator who offers expert advice on communicating and debating without alienating either party. Dr. DiCarlo is an award-winning lecturer, educational and business consultant, and past visiting research scholar at Harvard University in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Department of Anthropology, and the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. DiCarlo. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, well, this is very timely. I guess it's been timely for quite a while, actually. So we're going to be talking about uh, how to disagree and get along. That's not too easy, I guess, in the context of all that's happening right now, in our country anyway. And I guess specifically we want to talk about four ways to talk about eight shootings. We're going to kind of focus on what's happening now because, boy, we... Definitely, it seems to me, don't disagree. Do, do disagree. I mean, there it, and uh, on how to ha- what to do about uh, uh, sh- sh- not just school shootings, but just shootings in general uh, here in the United States. So, where do we start? I'm going to let you start. What do we do? How do we? How can how can we resolve this? Or do you have well, a way of resolving that? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, I wish I had the, uh, you know. Uh, a magic pill solution that could uh, make all of that, uh, you know, go away. But the fact of the matter is it's, it's not, and it's a very complex issue that is not going to be resolved with just, you know, simple platitudes or, or simple, uh, simple answers. It's, it's going to take time, and it's going to take education, and it's going to take force of will of people to basically stand up for the types of things that they value. And the problem is is that there's a lot of different values going on. Uh, those who are pro-gun value owning whatever type of, of weapon, any type of gun that they, they want. Those who, who value security and whatnot uh, don't want certain types of guns. 
being uh, owned and operated by various people. But then there are common values between both sides. And I think those are the ones that, that we need to focus on. And we just have to figure out the way in which both of those values can be attained by both sides. And clearly the, the central value in all of this uh, is basically liberty or the freedom for people to be able to do what they want. While those who own automatic weapons want the freedom to be able to own them. And those who don't want to own them, they have that freedom as well, but they don't want to get shot up in the next you know, uh, day or two because somebody decides they're going to take those automatic weapons and use them in that capacity. So it's a fine balancing act between allowing people to exercise their, their liberty to attain the types of values that they want. And like I said, there's no easy answers to this, but if we can step back from the situation and see what it is we're dealing with, we're in a better position, I think, uh, to deal with it. And to me, that's understanding the differences of values. Why do people have these different values uh, to begin with? And then it comes down to, at what point does the state then have the right to curtail uh, specific liberties in order to generate greater liberties for all? And again, like I said, that's a, a delicate uh, balancing act, right? We can try to work through the, the details of gun ownership and gun use and, and whatnot, but if certain organizations aren't willing to budge, if the NRA doesn't think this is even worth discussing, um, then we're, we're kind of at a, at a bit of a stalemate. We can't even you know, get the conversation going. I think one of the ways that I know this is uh, maybe seems somewhat simplistic, but this is the first time I've noticed, at least with the press and in the conversations, that we have been questioning these platitudes. And I was always kind of sort of yelling at the TV. We're talking about, you know, after any one of these horrific events, these shootings, these mass shootings, it's, you know, lighting candles and, and, and our hearts are with you and all of those kinds of platitudes. It, that always bothered me. This is the first time I think, you know, obviously with these students um, in Florida that they said, you know, this is not enough. I mean, it, it, I think we, I've never heard that before. Yeah, and to me, that's what it's going to take, right? It's going to take the public to, to rise up and put the type of pressure that is sustained, like it has to continue. You can't just be angry every time one of these things occurs because it always follows the same pattern. We're outraged. We can't believe it happened. And then we go back to our normal lives in a couple of days or whatnot. Then it happens again, and we're outraged. And, you know, the same similar pattern keeps going on and on and on. What these kids are finally demonstrating is that they're, they're willing to go that extra distance. They're willing to sustain their, their rage at, the, you know, the lack of function or performance of their governments to actually take the initiative to make things happen, to, to generate the type of change that, according to all polls, at least from you know, my perspective here in Canada, when I see what the polls say, that most Americans agree that there should be things like you know, certain types of background checks, that there are certain you know, weapons, that, that, you know, automatic weapons that aren't necessarily uh, needed by the public, or if they are, there should be far greater demands on who gets them and that sort of thing. And so we're finally seeing that now 
in Florida and elsewhere where students are taking that initiative. And I think that's the first step in getting the, the, the politicians uh, to wake up. I don't know if um, that will have the type of um, overall far-reaching effect that we want it to have, but at least it's a start, and at least it's waking you know, um, some politicians up to the realization that you know, this is something that the public has had enough of, that we, we've, we've seen enough of it, we've seen enough death, we know what the causes are, you know, and, and, and it's got to change. And when the government you know, just doesn't do anything about it, it's incredibly frustrating and we, you know, we just feel as we have this kind of impotent rage that we, you know, we can't really do anything about it. But at least with what these kids are doing now, we're starting to see at least some heads turning in the direction of, you know, the potential for a discussion. Yeah, I think it's kind of like a perfect storm in a way. You know, these are students. Mm-hmm. These are students tend to be activists. These are students who are going to be going to college. They're students who are going to be voting. Um, so this particular group is somewhat unique in terms of what has happened in the past, in terms of who the victims of all of these mass shootings have been, and also social media, so they can reach so many people um, in, you know, in, in real time. And so all of that, I think, contributes to, to all of this as well, um, in a good way. That's um, right, and it, it speaks to the fact that, is, is this whole gun issue a generational thing like are we just is it just a matter of the next generation coming up and saying you know what uh this isn't our parents generation anymore we're going to take the reins here and we're gonna we're gonna steer the ship and we want a world in which we don't have to live in fear anymore and or at least in less fear and uh we're we're perhaps seeing a generational moment in history that's the same type of thing will happen elsewhere around the world in terms of politics and whatnot. And now we're seeing it on you know, American soil where the, the youngest generation is now saying, enough, we've, we've had enough and something needs to be done. And I wish them all, all the luck in the world because I, I'm, I'm certainly on their side with this. Yeah, and also I, I think um, it was a similar thing uh, during, in the Vietnam War. You know, I mean, it, in this case, it was college students who stood up and said, you know, this is something that, you know, we, we don't want anymore and, and, you know, made public aware of it and all of that. These happens to be high school students. Mm-hmm. But now, but let's, maybe we should get into, like, how do we begin to discuss this? I mean, you mentioned in the beginning, we're all entitled to, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and everybody wants it, but how do we attain it how can so that's really the issue isn't it it's not that our values are different in terms of that we want to be happy and healthy and um so those kinds of values are the same um you know good i think you you mentioned in your book good health education employment environment but how to attain that that's where we disagree and uh which is related to the gun issue right so, so that's yeah yeah, that's essentially why I named the book Six Steps to Better Thinking. So, you know, these are basic uh, foundational rules that allow people to engage in conversation in, in ways that is going to make their points clear to the other side 
so that it will allow us to better understand why, first of all, there are differences of opinions. It will bring us greater attention to how we can structure our ideas so that we are uh, heard with greater clarity, and it allows us to understand the biases that exist within any society for why people might have those beliefs in the first place, and that allows us to better understand the context in which we are having this discussion so we can uh, appreciate why the differences exist uh, in the first place. And, and then these steps also allow us to be able to understand better the types of evidence that can be used in support of a particular position and what counts as evidence and was the evidence gained in a reliable way so that you know you can't just choose anything from the Internet because... You know, there are better and worse sources for gaining information in a reliable way. And then the final step uh, involves our abilities to recognize what are called fallacies or errors in reasoning so that when somebody says something um, erroneous, we can call them out on it and say, you are violating a basic law of logic, and we cannot allow that. So if, if together we can use these foundational steps to, to critical thinking, I think that will go a long way towards increasing the likelihood that both sides will get more of what they want. But this requires a fair use of these, these foundational uh, steps, this, this skill set, as it were, and both sides have to agree you know, to the rules of critical thinking. And, yeah. and I think, you know, in, 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 uh, as you are discussing now, but also in your book, and you talk, you know, checking your biases, those kinds of mm-hmm. things. And I, I look at myself and putting myself up as an example. I mean, and I'll take one piece of this, you know, assault weapons. I can't let go of, if I'm talking to somebody who thinks they should be allowed, uh, an ordinary citizen allowed to have an assault weapon, I can't think of one reason why they would need to have it. I can't, yeah. I mean, I, the, the fence goes up or the wall goes up and, um, and then I start, you know, getting engaged in a discussion. I'm spouting off all the reasons why there's no reason for, uh, a person to have an assault weapon. And let's talk about that. How do you, how would I, talk to somebody other than doing what I'm not supposed to be doing. I mean, that's my bias. Yeah. No, and, and I share your, your biases as, as well. So what you and I could do if we're discussing this is we could, we could play devil's advocate and look at what, what are called uh, the, the opposite ends of the spectrum, right? So if, if you're at one end of the spectrum and you're saying nobody needs assault rifles, I can take devil's advocate position and say, well, who are you to say I can't have an assault rifle? I like assault rifles. I like firing these things. I think they're cool. I think they're, they're really neat. I go out on the practice firing range, and I, I blast off a magazine of 100 shells. Who are you to tell me I can't have that kind of fun? I really enjoy going out with my buddies and doing this kind of thing. No, I'm not going to use them to hunt deer or anything. I just like them because they're cool, and I live in a country. America guarantees me my liberty and freedom of rights to be able to blast off any rounds I want on my own property, and you, you, Catherine, you can't tell me what to do. What would you say to me then? 
My argument, then I start talking about, yes, but we do have rules and regulations. You can't do whatever you want to do. People can drive cars, but 12-year-olds are not allowed to drive cars, or 15-year-olds are not allowed to drive cars, but 16-year-olds are. So we do have rules and regulations, that things that we can or cannot do. You just can't do exactly what you want to do, and, you know, all that would be one thing. Um, so just because you want an assault, weapon doesn't mean you can have it, that that's just a, a God-given right in the, you know, in our Constitution, and it goes on from there. Sure. And so you, you could say, like, in terms of ages, you're right, there's no 12-year-olds that should be driving cars, but if, what if I'm a 25-year-old? Surely I'm mature enough to be able to handle this firearm. You know, those people who go into and, and shoot up places and schools and that kind of stuff, I'm not like them. I'm different. I can control what I do, and therefore, just because of a few bad apples, you want to take all of our assault rifles away. What would you say to that person? I would say anybody that I know in the military who has been mm-hmm. in the military, and I haven't heard actually any person who's been in the military who uses these assault weapons who says that an ordinary civilian should be firing because of the type of weapon they are, the damage they cause. They're used to, I mean, they're used specifically to annihilate your enemy, and they're, right. they should not be used by ordinary citizens. Now, those are people right. who are in the military, who know about guns, who are familiar with them, who use them, and I have to assume that they're the experts. Right. So, okay, so look at what you've done. You've, you, you've used reasoning by analogy. You're saying... Well, these are used by experts, and you're, you're appealing to an authority, right? You're saying these are the people who know so much more about guns than the average person, and listen to what they're saying. So you're bolstering your argument with some evidence that comes from authorities, people we should listen to. So you're backing your arguments well. Now, what we have to then determine is, can we communicate to the persona I'm taking on, that the guy who just wants these things because they're fun and you shouldn't have any right to take them away from me, how do we now communicate to that person to be able to, to educate them or to at least bring them into the conversation to the point where we can say, you know what, yep, these things are a lot of fun. But the problem is, is that when they're not used in responsible ways, the amount of damage overrides anyone's right to be able to have them because they're fun. So then by analogy, you could say things like, um, we don't allow people to, to have hand grenades and explosives and throw those out into their backyard and blow things up because they're fun, because we know if those were used in any other kind of situation, the damage would be extraordinary. So then we just bring that back a little and say, well, automatic weapons aren't exactly hand grenades, but boy, they can do an awful lot of damage as well. And since we have laws about explosives, we're going to apply that law to assault rifles simply because we know that if people uh, use them in, in ways where they, they're going to shoot up places, the amount of damage far exceeds what could be done by other semi-automatic weapons or other types of weapons. And so we can, that's an analogy then we can bring into the argument to try to make your point clear to that person. And then, of course, so, Christopher, the, so what would you, you're playing the devil's advocate. What are you going to yeah. say to me besides the fact that it's fun 
and I know how to use them, and I can go in my backyard and shoot up, and, and I'm not going to hurt anybody. Right. Like, yeah. As that advocate, I would just say, you know, I, I just, you know, pull out the Second Amendment, and I would say, you have no right to tell me that I can't bear my arms, you know, that I have no right, you know, to have these, whether they're semi-standard uh, uh, manual or, or, or fully automatic, you have no right uh, to tell me that uh, you're going to curtail my liberties in, 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 in accordance with the, uh, with the Second Amendment. I would just keep and going. And is back it really the Second Amendment or is it the interpretation of the Second Amendment? Well, of, cor- of course it's the interpretation. Yeah. You know, any intelligent person knows that, but yeah. I just want my guns, so I'm just going to use that Second Amendment to protect me, right? I'm just going to use that to hide behind so that you can't take my guns away, and I'm going to cry foul against the Constitution every time you try. Now, there is a midway point here. There is a point between these two extremes, the devil ad- devil's advocate and yourself, that we need to consider, and that is, do we have to take all the automatic weapons away, or do we practice principles similar to Japan, not necessarily as as extreme? I'm not sure if you know what the gun laws are like in Japan. They're extremely strict. To get any kind of gun requires an enormous amount of bureaucratic red tape. So then could we just make getting automatic weapons more restrictive with very, very strict background checks to those people that qualify so that we don't deny them outright, but, boy, it's going to be a lot more difficult for just the average Joe to walk in off the street and buy one of these things. Can we, you know what I mean? Can we meet halfway and say, we're not trying to take your guns away, but you have to demonstrate to us your, your care because... Kevin, you and I have to admit, the majority of gun owners out there don't commit these acts. We have to be fair, and we have to realize that the majority of them don't do these types of acts. Okay. The problem is, is when some of them do. So how do we, how do we try to figure that out? Well, we make it more restrict, more difficult to get these things. So it doesn't have to be an all or nothing Right, that could be a, what's called a false dichotomy. It doesn't have to be all the guns go or all the guns stay. Maybe there is this this medium in between where people can have automatic weapons and they demonstrate that they are capable of owning and operating them, and that there are I don't know seasonal tests or you have to report in or like we we can work this you know a thousand different ways to make America safer, and I, I just don't think we're we're working hard enough to try to figure out how people can exercise their liberties so that they get the, to value the types of things that they that they want. So that would be I, mean, I think my... that's an excellent example. And I have one last question for you sure. because we only have a couple minutes left, literally. But what do you think about, you know, we when we wanted to help people to stop smoking, it wasn't that we said you can't ever buy cigarettes. We kind of going along with what you said, but to buy a pack of cigarettes to cost a fortune today, that's one thing. And then yep. all these public service uh, announcements really showing what, what what smoking does to you? Really, you know, um, very graphic kinds of public PSAs. Mm-hmm. Doing the same thing with assault weapons. This is what happens when you shoot somebody with an assault weapon. I mean, this you know, this is a military. This is a military weapon, and this is exactly what happens. And put that up there so people can see that. I mean, it's very disturbing, but it's it, well. I just wanted your response. 
Yeah, like I'm, I'm all for PSAs. I, I don't think we have enough of them, to, to tell you the truth, and I don't think we have enough good ones. I think we actually need to take up-and-coming young directors and give them, have the you know, government state initiatives, pay them, give them a budget, and have them make excellent PSA um, commercials that demonstrate the effects of, the, of these types of weapons so it resonates into the minds of the public. It gradually gets in there over time. I, I think that's, that's a great idea. And with smoking, we didn't just create PSAs and whatnot. We, we kind of banished them from the offices. We banished them from the elevators, from the schools. People have to smoke outside of buildings now. And that made it exceedingly more and more prohibitive for people to, to be able to smoke and kind of comfort. It kind of made them realize, ah, is it worth it, you know, to keep doing this? Maybe it's just better, you know, not to smoke, right? And then, and then look at what has uh, developed over the last few years. Uh, people now have uh, vaping uh, pens and whatnot, which, you know, you're, you're basically inhaling steam. Right? You're, you're not inhaling smoke anymore. There's no incineration. You're having no carbon or tar now. So that's, again, that kind of unique, happy medium, right, where a smoker, yeah. if they want to quit, they can gradually do it through a vape system and then gradually get, get off of that as well. You know, maybe there's that happy medium you know, with, with the automatic weapons as well. That exactly. There are, are ways I that mean, that's a great gone. example. That's a good point. I hate to say goodbye, but we have to say goodbye. So I do want to uh, mention your book again, uh, Six Steps to Better Thinking, How to Disagree and Get Along. And we've been talking to Dr. Christopher DiCarlo. Um, just give us a website we can go to so people can continue with, obviously, buy your book and go online and get more information about you and the book. Yeah, sure. It's just sixstepstobetterthinking.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.